So I invite you to take your Bibles and turn or scroll to Romans, Romans chapter 3. We are answering the question um, longer than I had originally anticipated, but it's one of those things where you have these open-ended little mini-series and you're like, man, I've got to talk about that too. We're answering the question or posing the question, why did Jesus die? Now, you might think that's a very elementary question to ask, and yet if you look at culture today, even within church culture, as I've said many times, the significance and the meaning of the death of Christ is often diminished or sidestepped altogether. So let's start with this one. For whom did Christ die? For whom did Christ die? As you're formulating your answer, if you do not include God, the Father, we need to develop our theology a little bit. Because it's that concept of pivoting from man-centered to God-centered. And that's exactly one of the concepts that we'll look at this morning is the fact that Christ died to his father, meaning his death was offered to his father for our sins, for sure, uh, but it was first and foremost directed to the father. We'll unpack that in just a little bit. We've seen recently that the entirety of Scripture speaks to these sacrifices that are all throughout God's word, Old and New Testament. In fact, it is fair to say that the pages on your Bible are bloodstained from beginning to end. The cross is the center point of the narrative of God's word. The story that is told, as my pastor would say, the unfolding drama of Redemption, God's holiness, God's justice, my sin, God's mercy and kindness and love. So this morning we will highlight two words that are extremely important in this discussion. We've seen them both before along the way. They each represent a very special place in the meaning of Jesus' suffering and Jesus' death. The first one is propitiation. It's a long one. It's not one that we really talk about a lot in casual conversation. But it's a rich theological term and it's in your Bible. It is such a beautiful word for those of us who know the Lord. A propitiate or to propitiate the verb means to satisfy, to appease. And we're speaking of the holiness and the justice of God. The death of Christ fully and in every way propitiated or satisfied the holiness and the justice of God. Another word is redemption or to redeem. That means to buy out of, to buy back. 
specifically in scripture, to buy out of slavery at a precious, precious cost. So let's see how these concepts are used in the passage that is in front of us. Romans chapter 3, this great passage on faith in the gospel. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read about five or six verses. And then we're going to go back and read it again with a little bit of commentary along the way. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. There is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested or revealed apart from the law, although the law and the prophets actually bear witness to it, to the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all who believe and are justified by his grace as a gift. Look at all these gospel terms through the redemption. There's our first word that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. There's our second word by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. It was to show the righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is what we would call a dense or a rich passage. Every word has such significance So I'd like to walk through this a little slower together. If you go back to verse 21, he says this. There is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Contrary to everything you will hear and learn in culture, in society today, We all fall in the same category. We are sinners. And we fall short regularly of the glory, the majesty, the righteousness, the perfection of God. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So God's righteousness has been given, it's been shown, it's been revealed, and it is apart from this rat race of trying to keep the law, of trying to obey the Ten Commandments as if you could do that perfectly anyway to get in. Although, on the flip side, the law and the prophets, that's Moses and all the guys after him, they all spoke to this same thing. So the law is about Christ, but we're not keeping the law in order to be saved. What a relief. They bear witness to Christ. They bear witness to the righteousness of God. That is God's standard, how God will put forward righteousness, how I can become righteous, and how God can remain the righteous one. It is through faith in Jesus Christ, 
So it's not just faith a general term. It is faith in an object, if you will, and that is Jesus Christ. For all who believe and are justified, which means to be declared righteous. Imagine that, that one word. A sinner declared judiciously and legally, judicially and legally to actually be righteous. All of this is by God's grace. And it's a gift. So we're underscoring that initial thought. You can't earn this. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The redemption is nowhere else other than in Christ. And how did this work? How did he buy us out of the marketplace or of, of slavery and sin? Well, God put forward Christ, his own son, as a satisfaction, a propitiation of his justice by his blood. All those countless sacrifices that were made in the Old Testament, oh, the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sins. But they show us and they point to a principle and to one with a capital O who would later come to be received by faith. These two words, redemption and propitiation, are intrinsically tied together. Know these words. They will give you such confidence and such joy and a clarity in understanding the gospel and what that looks like for us on a daily basis. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. I want to show you what is perhaps the most stunning statement in all of Scripture. It is the summary of the gospel. It is why the gospel of Jesus Christ is unlike anything else you will ever study or find in philosophy or religion anywhere at any time. That he might be just and the justifier. Those two concepts have to be in place in order for the gospel to be true and effective. God is just. He cannot wink at sin. Justice must be upheld. God's holiness and his righteousness must not be tarnished or transgressed. And yet the very concept of him being the justifier is his mercy and his kindness, where God actually declares sinners to be without sin as if they had never sinned before. That is stunning. And that's the beauty of the gospel. And that's what we'll look at this morning as we uh, mark communion together just a little bit later on. So let's look at the first word. I'll switch the order. Redemption. 
or to redeem. The first thing I want you to know about this word that might help you as you read your Bible is redemption or to redeem is always us word. It's always from God to us. We are the ones who need redemption. We are the ones who are redeemed. We are the ones who are bought out of the marketplace of sin and condemnation. There's a number of examples that might help us understand these words. You might have heard these before. Imagine for a moment. This happens somewhat frequently. Somebody is maybe going through their home and wanting to get rid of some things, downsize, clean, whatever it is, and they sell or they auction off or they take to a pawn shop a lot of specific items that they no longer need. And then they realize after the fact that one item, I don't know, was a family heirloom or it had great value, either sentimental or otherwise. And now there's the strong desire to go get that item back at any price. Imagine if I were to have done that. Something that I later realized was of immense value to me or to my family. And I feel helpless. But you step in. And you track down, let's just say there's a local auction. And that item that I had gotten rid of for a small, made a small amount of money on. You show up to that auction. Others might be bidding, I don't know, $100, $200. And you step in and you silence everyone and you say, I'll take that and I'll take it for $4,000. Because nobody else will pay that amount for it. But you know the value of that for me. And so at an enormous cost, one that cannot be overrun, you buy back that item and you give it to me. And I thank you for that. That is redemption. That's the idea Buying something at great cost. Buying it back. Redemption. Redeemed. Out of the marketplace of sin. Condemnation. Guilt. Shame. Purchased back. But not just purchased in a casual sense. The price that goes into it, biblically speaking, is so enormous and so beautiful, it cannot fail. Keep in mind, when we speak about redemption and salvation and Jesus' death, this is not for angels. It's only for people. Why does that matter? When you see angels giving praise to God, it's a beautiful thing. But when you see the gathering of the redeemed in Revelation, it's a whole other level. Because we were bought back. The angels never lost their estate.
We were bought back by his blood. And Peter tells us that the angels long to look into these things because it's foreign to them. They're amazed at it. They don't fully understand it. How is it that God is completely reversing the curse? And how is it that these very sinful people are now known as saints, righteous ones? Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us. He bought us back from the curse of the law. Remember those stone tablets in the Ark of the Covenant. They expose our guilt. They confirm what any straight-thinking person knows. I'm a sinner. But Christ redeems us from the curse of the law. How does he do that? By becoming a curse himself. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Ephesians 1, seven reminds us that the redemption for our salvation is by his blood. Now, redemption in a salvation sense, redemption is not possible without propitiation. You can't have the two. You can't have one without the other. So now let's talk a little bit more about propitiation. If redemption is always us word from God, well, propitiation works the other way. It is toward God. Propitiation is offered or made to the one who is holy. The catch is, You and I are completely unable to remedy our situation. You and I are unable to propitiate, to satisfy the justice and the holiness and the righteousness of God. Which is why straight from the beginning, remember Genesis 12, God and Abram, the covenant, the sacrifices that are made. Abram is put to sleep. So that it's very clear that he had nothing to do with any of this. And as you read your, your Old Testament, you know there were some astute people sitting in the crowd in every generation, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, who are surely thinking to themselves, well, here we go again. Clearly, clearly Ebenezer didn't do it right last year because here we are doing it again. Or how about the priests themselves daily offering a sacrifice of one sort? At some point, you've got to look in and say, this is not working. If this was the desired remedy, it's not doing its job. Oh, but that's God's forbearance. Until Christ would come. Imagine... This scenario, which I've mentioned many times before, Colin gets a speeding ticket going too fast down the road, goes to court, 
stands before the judge. And the judge says, you were going 20 miles over the limit. The fine is $200. I plead my case. I was busy. I have a big family. And can you just let it go? Now, if that judge were to say, you know what? I I do like you. You're a nice person. Forget it. You can go home. That's mercy. That's kindness. But it's not justice. Because the law was broken. And the law, the, the requirement of the law has not been satisfied. On the flip side, if the judge looks at me and says, thank you for your story. The fifth story I've heard today. Pay up before you leave. That's justice. He or she is completely within bounds to do that because that's what the law requires. But it's not very nice of her either. I'm beginning to take this personally when I insert myself into these stories. Oh, but think of the third option. Where she affirms indeed you, your infraction requires a $200 fine. But she says, hold that thought. She takes off her robe. She circles around. Whips out her checkbook. Writes the check to Montgomery County Court, whatever. Here you go. Pay that before you go. What is that? Well, that's propitiation. That is the righteous requirement of the law for whatever infraction it was being fully satisfied. But along with the satisfaction of the law was kindness and mercy and love. And I had nothing to do with it. Saints, that's what propitiation is. It is when the righteous requirement of the law, let's say in this case, the Ten Commandments, the law of God, and His holiness and His righteousness are completely and in every way satisfied and met. Now this is something that we do well to understand and to keep in mind because it has practical implications for us each and every day. Let's tie these together. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Think of this beautiful statement. Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8 kind of go together. It's a unit. Romans 8 is that glorious culmination of all that he's been talking about. And he begins in this way, verse 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is extraordinarily freeing. It means that when I stand before God... There is no condemnation, present 
or future tense. But this is something I'm very, for me personally, I'm very big on. I want to understand the why behind the what. Because it's tempting for this to become a verse that we appreciate and we seek to believe. But I think I can help each of us really believe this statement by understanding the theology that underpins it. So go back to that word propitiate. Did Christ propitiate, satisfy the righteous demands of the law and the holiness of God, or did he not? If he did, then this statement is true. Spoiler alert, is in the Bible, so it's true. Do you see what I just did there? We took a theological term, and we now explained this verse, so that you and I hopefully can have more confidence in this. Imagine... If you are living your life and you feel weighted down by guilt constantly, there are reasons for that. One of them is perhaps you don't fully understand or fully believe or fully apply the truth of the gospel every single day. You see... Someone once asked Martin Luther, why do you preach the gospel every single Sunday? We get it. This is a church of believers, his response. But yes, we forget so easily. I need to be reminded and so do you. Imagine the freedom that will begin to take root in your life if you wake up with the confidence, knowing and believing on the truth of God's word and the fact that Christ, the Son of God, offered himself and fully, in every way, without exception, propitiated, satisfied God's wrath on you. Now listen, that is our biggest problem. And it's solved by him for us, completely and without exception. I can build my life on that. But it doesn't end there. I mean, we could, you know, when I was a kid, uh, no offense to those of you who are math teachers, but I remember my eighth grade math teacher made this statement often. Math is fun. And I remember, I'm just speaking as Colin here, thinking to myself, no, it's not. I mean, I liked algebra. Up to algebra was fine. I enjoyed it. I liked the, how logical it is. But after that, I, I honestly, I, I wasn't really of the opinion that, that math is fun. And, and again, for some of you it is, and I appreciate you. But I want to tell you something. Theology is fun. And I don't mean that in a light way. When you begin to understand these core theological principles that are... that that are like the foundation of the gospel and what we believe. It brings such freedom. It brings such confidence. You don't have to listen to me say it. You yourself can see it in God's word and believe it and apply it and stand with confidence. Let's stick in Romans chapter 8. We'll just stay here for now. Look at verse 31. I mean, talk about... Amazing. 
What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? Now, let's apply some logic here. If God is for us, and what he's really stating is, God is for us. He is not opposed to us. He is not against us. He is not angry with us. He might have to deal with us in loving discipline on issues in our life. We get that. But his disposition towards us is that he loves us, that he accepts us completely. If God is for us, who can be against us? So Paul is applying his killer logic here, and he's saying, look, if God is for us, who are you afraid of? Why are you walking around guilty and feeling guilty? If you're reading it for yourself, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously? What more could God give than himself, his son? That is what God, God put forward his son as a propitiation to absolutely satisfy his holiness. That is the gospel. And we never get tired of saying it because it's so true. It is so amazing. But he'll walk you through his line of thought. Verse 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Well, it's God who justifies. God is the one who said you are not guilty. In fact, you are righteous. Who are you afraid of? God has said it. Oh, but he goes further. further verse 34. Who is to condemn? Well, Christ is the one who died. The Son of God sweat drops of blood knowing what was coming to him. Knowing full well that he would absorb every single one of your sins. Oh, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Paul says, guys, this is the most life-giving, beautiful truth. You didn't earn it, so you can't lose it. Because it's not about you. Verse 37. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Saints, you know this passage. For I am sure, I am convinced, I am persuaded, verse 38, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing, nothing, not one thing. But saints, why is that true? Romans 8 
is the summary and the application and the crowning declaration of everything he said up to this point. That passage that we read earlier on in Romans chapter 3. Where we're all declared guilty, all declared sinners, but God loves you and Christ is the propitiation. Saints, Christ propitiated, satisfied in every conceivable way the righteousness of God. Salvation is a gift. Christ died to take your sins and my sins upon himself. Not in part, but the whole. Has been nailed to the cross. And I bear them no more. That's the beauty and the exquisite love. That is behind the death of Christ. Next week, I will attempt to land the plane or get closer to it, to the runway. And we'll answer the question more specifically, what has, through his death, what has Christ saved us from and what has he saved us to? Because that is amazing. So I'd like to now shift to Mark Communion. To observe communion, excuse, excuse me, together. I want to give you a moment to take your um, communion rations, prepare them. Everything we just spoke about is tied in together and flows from what we're about to read. Remember, in that last supper, when Jesus rewrote the narrative, he rewrote the Passover, which was temporal redemption from physical slavery, where he rewrote the narrative from hundreds of years of celebrating the redemption of God's people out of Egyptian slavery. To freedom. Jesus says, you know, all of these Hebrew scripture, Old Testament stories and narratives are actually about me. Remember the Sermon on the Mount when he said, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill. He didn't just say, I'll teach it. He said, I will be the one in whom it is fulfilled. Paul said this, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Oh, I know that for years and years and years, as we think about the Passover, we think about that lamb, that blood was applied on the doorpost. You walk through it, you're covered by the blood, and now you're free. You're not a slave anymore. He said, but it was all about me all along. And I know that's what... 
our parents and our grandparents and our great-great-grandparents have always celebrated. But I'm, I'm here to tell you that I've come now. And I will fulfill. I will fulfill the law and the prophets. Would you join me, please? I can never get tired of saying this. He goes on to say, in the same way, he took the cup after supper. We know that there were four cups in the Passover meal. The third cup was immediately after the supper, and it was the cup of redemption. How perfect. That Christ would then once again offer his commentary. And speak of the blood of the lamb that was on the doorpost. And say there's someone greater who has come. There's someone who has come. Who will shed his blood once for all. Never ever to be repeated. He said this is my body. I'm sorry. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Literally everything we just talked about. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Would you join me please? Would you join me as we pray together? Oh Lord, thank you. Thank you for the redemption that is in the blood of Jesus. Thank you that in every way He completely, without exception, propitiates, satisfies your holiness and your justice. Thank you that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Lord, may we never take it for granted. May we never lose our sense of awe and wonder at grace. And may our hearts truly be strengthened by grace. Our years on this earth are truly finite. We don't know what tomorrow holds. Thank you for that confidence that through the blood of Jesus, through our faith in Jesus, because of what he has done and who he is, 
we are declared not only not guilty, but righteous. Clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And Lord, it is our sincere desire that anyone here today or listening later on who does not understand this, has not understood it, or never responded to it, that today would be the day of their salvation. By turning to you and abandoning all self-help or all personal efforts to fix a problem. But to put their faith fully and completely in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.